I'll be reading the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> um, we'll be reading Romans 3, 21 to 31. Uh, it's in your convenient little handout if you want to look at that. Cool. <clears throat> but now, apart from the law, the, right, uh, the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are all justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith and, and did this to demonstrate his righteousness because, of his, because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did, not, he did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who, justify, who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? Is it, it is excluded. Because of what law? The law that requires works? No, because of the law that requires faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the, apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through the same faith. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. Hi, uh, my name's Tim. It's great to have you with us. I echo Jordan's welcome. Um, you'll find an outline of the talk where we're going today on the other side opposite where that Bible passage was printed. So I think you'll find it useful to have that in front of you. Well, what's the deal with God? I suspect most of us know the sort of deal you get with God, don't we? Uh, even if you don't believe in God, if you're not sure about the existence of God, you know what the deal is. You've been taught it. It's sort of intuitive, isn't it? God wants people to behave. Is that right? And what he does is he gives us his rules, the things that he wants us to do, and if we do them, he rewards us. And if we don't do them, he punishes us. That's just the way we all know it goes with God. I remember talking to a group of high school students once in a, in a classroom, and I was there as a sort of religious instruction, which meant everyone was bored. <laughs> and so it's a bit of an experiment. I, I, I said this. I said... Good people go to hell, it's only bad people who go to heaven. Nothing changed. Not a blink. The same glazed look on everybody's eyes. And I said, can you tell me what I just said? And, and finally one of the kids piped up and he said, you said good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell. And then somebody else said, but you mixed up your words and you, you got a bit wrong, didn't you? See, they knew what the deal was. They knew how to correct me. They knew what God did. Well, the paragraph we're looking at from the Bible today blows that into the water. It's a paragraph from the Bible that shatters that picture, especially that first paragraph you see that runs from verses 21 to 26 of this book called Romans in the third chapter. It begins with, but now. And but, I think, is the most powerful word in the English language. Now, the assignment was almost impossible, 
but that changes it, doesn't it? He's pretty cool, but it just changes the whole... Everything that's been said before is suddenly modified drastically. The Dockers won, but it was only their fourth win of the year. (laughs) And he starts by saying, but now apart from law, that is apart from what we do, apart from our goodness, apart from our performance... There's a new deal, a, a, a solution from God that isn't about what we do. Now, we need to backtrack a little bit. Why do we need a solution? If you've been with us the last three weeks, I hope you've been persuaded of your need for a solution and my need. But we get it summarised here in this paragraph as well in, in verse 23. He says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We've all done evil. Uh, uh, and so the deal we assume is right... God rewards people who do good, doesn't apply. Well, if it does, it's a disaster. If God gives us what we deserve, if God gives us justice, then we're all in deep trouble and we can't get out of it. And it's not simply that we've accidentally slipped a couple of times and surely God can overlook that. We've suppressed the truth about God. We've tried to push him down. We've turned our back on God in a determined bid to be God in our own lives. And if we tell God to butt out of our lives... The very least I deserve is for God to do that. God to butt out, to give me life without him, to leave me alone. Which, if you contemplate it, is the most terrible prospect you can imagine. We've got a problem, but actually this passage says that God has a problem as well. We don't often think about it from God's perspective. We're just too self-centred, aren't we? But if God created us, if he genuinely cares about it, he he designed and shaped us as his creatures to rule his universe, but we've fallen short of that glory, a long way short. Well, you might say, why doesn't God just forgive us? Why doesn't he just forget our failures, sweep it all under the carpet? Well, can I ask, do you think God can do that? The God who insists that human judges are just and impartial. The God who promised the victims of evil that he would put it right. Can he just sweep evil under the carpet? I don't think we want a God who's corrupt and lenient like that, do we? Who let Hitler off and say, I don't mind. Six million Jews, who cares? Or Pol Pot or Peter Rushton, whoever you want to nominate. You might say, oh, well... (laughs) Hitler, yeah, I want him to take action about Hitler, but not me and my friends. That's even worse then, isn't it? You want God to be partial. That's unjust. An Australian author called Paul White was once booked for speeding. And in one of his books, he recounted that a week later, he got a letter from the deputy commission of the police, who was a friend of his. And the letter began, Dear Mr White... Your speeding ticket came across my desk. I couldn't erase your name, even though we're friends. That would be unjust. And in verse 26, the last bit in that first paragraph, it talks about God doing this. His solution was to demonstrate his own justice, his own righteousness at the present time, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus, that is, justify the wicked people. How can God be just and acquit the guilty at the same time? We've got a problem. We're stuffed. We can't solve it. God has a problem as well, generated by our evil. And today, though, is about God's unexpected solution that he explains in verses 21 to 26. 
Now, this needs unpacking. It's a fairly dense little paragraph. In the original, it's just one sentence, very carefully constructed. We're going to try and pull it apart and see what he's saying. But first and foremost, I want you to recognise it's saying that God provides the solution. God doesn't sit up in heaven and say, come on, you can do better. Do something about your problem. He says, I'll do something. He takes ownership. He takes responsibility. And his solution centres on Jesus. Do you notice that? Verse 22, faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 24, redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Now, if you don't know anything about Jesus, I'd love to introduce you to him and, and help you understand him. But he's saying that the solution comes by God through Jesus. It's the death of Jesus that's the key. Uh, notice here we're not talking about an idea or a philosophy. We're talking about concrete events in history that are open to investigation and inquiry. Did they really happen? What did they achieve? God's solution centres on the death of Jesus. April 30 AD, Jesus was crucified outside Jerusalem by the Romans at the instigation of some of the Jewish leaders. But this passage explains what was going on when he died. And it uses a number of images, picture words to explain both what it is and what it achieves. The first one comes in verse 25. It says in, in this translation, God presented Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood. Now, the, the, it's actually just one word there, sacrifice of atonement. We, we've got to try and, try and work out how to put it into English. Um, uh, it, it, the, a, a sort of straight translation would be propitiation, but you don't know what that means, so it doesn't help you, does it? It comes from the temple that God had uh, designed and given to his people Israel in the Old Testament before Jesus came along. The idea of propitiation or atonement is to appease the anger by making some sort of reparation. So imagine I get hold of your phone and I smash it onto the floor here, trample it underfoot. How do you feel? Aggrieved, I presume. I shouldn't do that. It's wrong. My phone's in pieces. I haven't got a phone anymore. How, how people... You'll be angry with me, and rightly so. What needs to happen for that to be put right? Well, some sort of appeasement needs to happen, doesn't it? Some sort of atonement for what I have done. That's what's needed in order to restore relationship. And in the Old Testament, God designed a system of sacrifices. People taking a lamb or a goat in place of themselves as a human sinner. It showed us that sin deserves death. But here they take an unblemished lamb or goat and it dies instead. The idea of substitution. I deserve to die, but it dies in my place. And its death was sort of, I guess, encapsulated in the blood. When you pour the blood out of an animal and you sprinkle it around, which is what they did, you know that it took death. Not just $10 or something like that to make it right, but something to die, to atone for sin. And that helps us see what he means by Jesus' death as an atonement a sacrifice of atonement. He dies our death. He's not an animal. He's God the Son who's become a human. He can die in my place. And he takes my place and your place to atone for our evil. And God provides it. We don't. We didn't ask Jesus to do it. Our God sends his Son to do it. Now, I need to just mention something on the side here. Some people uh, rightly understand that Jesus' death is a great demonstration of love. And it is that. But some people want to say that's all it is. It's just an inspiring example. It's something to convince us that God really is on our side and loves us. But if that's all it is, 
It actually doesn't make sense, does it? Let me give you a, a parallel. Imagine I say to you, I'm going to prove how much I love you. I'm going to jump in front of this train and get myself killed. Would you say, Tim really loves me? Now I think you'd say, Tim's stupid. See, it's, it's only a demonstration of love if it actually does something for you, if it achieves something for you. If you're in the road of the train and I push you out of the way and in the, in the, by doing that I get hit by the train, yet that is love. But if I just jump in front of it and say, I love you. No, that, Jesus' death achieves something. He dies in our place, a sacrifice of atonement. Secondly, he says it's redemption. See that in verse 24. All are justified freely by God's grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Here we move from temple to slave market and the world of slaves, which was a world familiar to everybody that, that lived in the Roman Empire. Now, a slave was usually a slave for life, but they could be redeemed. Maybe a family member won lotto and, and they had some money or friends really loved you enough. They might come and pay the price to set you free. It was called a ransom. And the parallel, of course, is that we're slaves, captives to our own evil and to condemnation. It's our own doing. And we can't escape. We're helpless. But Jesus pays the price of our freedom. Very, very costly. It's not a thousand dollars. It's not even a million dollars. It's his own life to set us free. And most of us, I guess, have in our mind some mental images from TV shows or something of slavery, the Afro-American slavery where people were forcibly captured in the, uh, in the rainforests of Africa, shipped across, sold as slaves into forced labour. Imagine in that situation, you're a slave, maybe even born into slavery because that happened to your parents, and then you hear that somebody has come and paid to set you free. That would be, that would be the best day of your life, wouldn't it? To, to, to know that it happened. Your life would be changed. The liberty you now had, the value you now felt because you'd been redeemed. Redemption. The third one, which is not what it does, but what it achieves, is justification. Again, in verse 24, all are justified freely by his grace. To be justified is to be declared righteous or innocent. It comes from the law courts. It's a decision of the judge, where he says, whatever the charges, you're innocent, you're not guilty. No charge against you, no condemnation. <coughs> but here it's not because the judge is corrupt or blind or naive, but because Jesus died to pay the penalty for our sin. I mentioned that author, Paul White, the letter from the Deputy Police Commissioner continued, but I've paid the fine for you. The justice was done. The police commissioner did not uh, bend justice. <coughs> he did it by paying the penalty himself. And that means Paul White is now justified. He can walk into a police station without worry that he's going to be arrested for the unpaid fine. It's all been paid. There's no charge to answer anymore. Imagine this book isn't a Bible. It's, it's a record of your life. I don't know whether you can think of that as something written down or videoed and, and put in there, cap, captured on a hard drive of some sort. Imagine that's a record of my life or your life. Everything you've ever done. Everything you've ever thought every motive you've ever had, everything that's been part of your imagination. In particular, everything that has been evil, that's been harmful, that has been an expression of rejection of God. 
Now, if that was my book, I actually wouldn't be very comfortable with you reading it because there's many things I'm ashamed of and I presume you're not much different to me. Well, that book is between me and God. It stands between us. God can't ignore it. I've done it. It's real. If he's going to be just, something needs to be done about what's in there for me to be free. Here's Jesus. What's in Jesus' book? Well, everyone who knew him said he committed no sin. His best friends who hung around with him for three years said he never did anything wrong. That is, his book is totally empty. When he died, he took my book on himself. Everything I'd done, everything we've done, and paid the penalty for it. He substituted. There was an exchange that happened. So what is now between me and God? Nothing. That's justification. Nothing on my record because Jesus has taken all of it on himself. That is how God can be just and acquit guilty people. Not because he sweeps it under the carpet, but because of Jesus. He took the rap that we deserve. That's a wonderful solution. Unexpected, yes, but a wonderful solution to our predicament and to God's integrity. Fourthly, he talks about where that comes from, what, what motivated God to do this. And he says in verse 24, it's grace, freely by God's grace. Now, grace, it's a word that sort of has got a bit too religious. It, in its context, it was it's just the normal everyday word for generosity. Now, if Andrew Forrest walked into this room now and just picked you out of the crowd at random and said, here's a billion dollars, I just want you to have it. That's grace. That, that's just generosity. Pure, unadulterated. It's absolutely free to us. We didn't deserve what God did in sending his son. We can't earn it. We don't have to qualify for it. In fact, we can't. Now, if you are unsure whether God cared about you before now, all doubt is blown out of the water, isn't it? When you see that he sent his son. That's grace. That's generosity. Fifthly, it talks about the response. It comes through faith. Faith is mentioned a few times here. Verse 22, righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, all who have faith. There's no difference. All have sinned and fall short. Uh, verse 25, through the shedding of us to be received by faith. Now, again, faith is something we confuse a bit too quickly. And next week we'll explore this in a bit more detail. Some people think faith is just a sort of religious feeling that some people have and others don't. Others think faith is a blind leap in the dark. But it's just the ordinary, everyday word for trust, for relying on something, having confidence in something. See, you've got faith in the chair you're sitting on at the moment. You might never have thought about it. It hasn't crossed your mind, but that's what you're doing. You're sitting on it, you're trusting it, aren't you? Well, that's the same idea here, but it's not about trusting chairs. See, with God, you can trust in what you do and what you are. Or you can trust, as he's talking about here, in Jesus and what he's done. This is a gift, he says, that is to be received by faith. In verse 27, he says, well, where then's boasting? It's excluded. Because of what? Well, uh, verse 28, for we maintain a person is justified by faith apart from works of the law. That is, right with God, accepted by God, not by what we do, works of the law, but simply by trusting in what Jesus has done. Not a bit of each. Because if it was a bit of each, I could still boast about my contribution, couldn't I? 
It's all of one or all of the other. Who want to say good people go to hell? It's only bad people go to heaven. I actually believe that's true. So if I think I'm good, if I don't think I need Jesus to die for me, if I'm trusting in who I am and what I've done, I'll go to hell. God will take me at my word. I want to trust what I am. That's what will happen. It's only bad people, people who recognise that they don't deserve God's acceptance and recognise the solution God has proposed, the, the solution God has given in his son, and say, that's what I'm going to trust. Those people are forgiven and rescued. Sixthly, he says, it's for everyone. It comes up a few times, the righteousness, verse 22, righteousness given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile. All have sinned and fall short. We're all in the same boat that way. And then all are freely justified by his grace. Notice that's everyone. Everyone falls short and everyone can be justified. God has declared an amnesty. All outlaws are welcome to come back in and be part of his people, part of his family. They'll be treated as if they've never been outlaws. And that's open to everybody. There's no privileged elite with inside running because of their brains or their buff or their nationality or their ethnicity. And no one is too evil. The offer extends even to Hitler and beyond. It's inclusive. There's no caste system or class system. <coughs> There's no language barrier. There's, you don't have to have a degree to get in. No, the amnesty is offered to all. And that means there's only two things that can exclude you. The first is, you don't want God in your life. You want to continue to suppress the truth. You're committed to your own autonomy. You want to stay an outlaw and you ignore the amnesty. Or you think you don't need God's salvation, his solution. You think you'll be okay without it, confident of your own goodness. I want to humbly suggest that both responses are foolish and dangerous. Well, what about us, you and me? What this is saying is God has put a new deal on the table. In the old deal, that's the one we intuitively know, God gives you what you deserve. Here's a new deal that comes because of Jesus. God doesn't give you what you deserve. Instead, he gives you mercy and forgiveness because Jesus died 2,000 years ago. And that's a binary choice. It's an either or. It's a bit like the phone plans you're on. Now you're on a phone plan, there's, there's, there's the old one. Somebody comes along and offers you a new one. You've got to choose which one you're going to have, don't you? If you move to the new one, you give up the old one. Or you can choose to stay on the old. But what's the old one here? The old one is, I want justice from God. I want God to look at my performance. I want God to go through my book and I'm trusting in good old me. And if it hasn't been quite up to scratch yet, I'm hoping I can make up for it in the next 50 years or so. That's the old deal. The new deal is very different. It's mercy and grace through the death of Jesus. Where I abandon hope in me and confidence in what I've done. I stop rebelling against God. And instead, I trust in Jesus and his death for me. I put my hope in Jesus. So, to boil it down, what do you want from God? Do you want justice or do you want mercy? Do you want God to treat you as you deserve or do you want God not to treat you as you deserve? Me, I'm a mercy man from beginning to end. I'd hate to go the justice way. But it's one or the other. You can't mix them. And you can't avoid the choice either. You're already in one or the other. And there are no other options. There's no private deals on the side. 
But I feel obliged to point out to you the results of those two deals. Of course, they're very, very different. This is not Holden versus Ford. This is not Prada versus, uh, Isla, how do you say it? Visa Laurent. Yeah, them, those. Uh, I don't wear them anyway. This is more like salmon versus salmonella. See, on the old deal, what's life like now? If I want justice from God, I live a life of uncertainty and fear. I live a life on the treadmill. Have I done enough? I need to try harder. Everyone around me will tell me to try harder and try harder. And I'll try and keep God at a bit of a distance because I don't really want him to see what's going on. And I'll look around me. I'll be competitive with people around me. If I'm doing well, I'll be filled with pride. I'll be arrogant. I'll look down on others. If I'm doing badly, it'll lead to despair. That's now. And in the future, which counts much more eternity, God will give me what I want. He'll give me justice. And justice will be terrible. Condemned forever. Well, that's the old deal. The new deal is so different. Now it means I can live a life of confidence and certainty, knowing that Jesus has paid it all. I've been accepted by God because of what Jesus did. I can be open with God. I can be humble. In fact, I will be humble and grateful. I live a life pretty relaxed, actually. And the future? Well, I know the decision about my life has been made already, justified. So on the last day, I'll be welcomed into eternity by God. Now, you don't have to be real bright to work out which is the better deal, do you? <laughs> it's, it's pretty obvious. Now, you may be a bit suspicious. Is it real? Is that deal actually being offered? Is, is it true? Or you might say, it sounds too good to be true. Are there strings attached? If that's how you're feeling, can I say, please keep investigating. Please look at this deal, because I think it holds up. <coughs> I think no matter how you investigate it, you'll see that, that it's real. This is actually what God has done and what he offers us. This passage is pretty clear, isn't it? And it's about something that happened in history. <coughs> well, let me just stop at that point and see whether there's any questions you want to ask or comments you want to make before I just take you through the last little part. Is there anything you want to ask, any comments you want to make? Okay, I'm happy to hang around afterwards. Please come and ask me if there are some things. So I want to make this personal, if I may, and ask you what you will decide. I know that some here have taken up the New Deal. And I just want to say, isn't it fantastic? It's unbelievable. Sometimes I pinch myself when I get up in the morning thinking that this is real. This is true. But it is. <coughs> Others of us, maybe you don't know about this deal. This is the first time you've heard about it. Maybe you've heard it a few times. The choice is in front of you. You've got a choice to make today. You've got a choice to make now, actually. Because God's put this new deal on the table. It's there waiting for you to look at, to take up. Will you sign up or will you walk away and stay with the old? Now, I can't put it more simply than that, more straightforward. What are you going to decide? Will you take up God's deal or will you stick with the one that you had before? How, how do you sign up? Well, clearly, you sign up by talking to God about his deal. That's the only way to sign up to anything, isn't it? And you'll find uh, under where the passage is printed out just the sort of thing you might say to God if you wanted to take up his deal. But just read it for yourself for a moment. Because in a minute I'm going to give you a chance to actually say it to God. 
This is what you want to say. Why don't you repeat it in your own heart and mind as I say it aloud? Let's talk to God. Lord God, I've lived my own way, ignoring you. I deserve your judgment. I'm sorry. Thank you for sending Jesus to take my judgment in his death. Please forgive me and help me to live with Jesus as my Lord and God. Amen. Can I say that if you've prayed that, if you've said that to God in the honesty of your own heart, God has heard. He's forgiven you. You've started a new life. Welcome. It's a great deal to be on. The best there is.